Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today's podcast, we have a very notable guest, uh, Andy Weissman from Union Square Ventures. We know Andy from his, you know, his investments like Chartbeat, but we also know him for a lot of what he's done for building out the New York ecosystem. And we had our companies come by recently on our U.S. trip to meet his team. And, you know, they're always walking away with great impressions about what these guys bring to the table. And so we want to get into the background of what makes USV what it is today, but also a little bit about the experience that Andy brings to the table. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's always great to chat with you guys. Um, Andy, we'd like to start off with your background. And I know that you you studied um, some elements of law, and maybe you can walk us through kind of what you did when you, you know, studied uh, economics and then migrated to law and kind of what you did during that early sort of career life. Sure thing. And my early career life was a long time ago, by the way, but because that's how old I am. But I studied, I studied economics in school and I liked going to school. And when I graduated, I wanted to go to school some more and I didn't want to go into medicine. So I went into law and I went to Georgetown because I wanted to move to Washington, D.C. because I thought it'd be fun to go to school in a city in an urban environment. It wasn't really anything more complex than that, although I will say at this point in time, you know, the concept of starting your own thing or or being an entrepreneur really was you know, wasn't kind of, I don't think in the forefront of, wasn't in the forefront for me, but I don't think it was in the forefront, you know, for a lot of people that I knew, you know, the ecosystem and the knowledge and the the idea that you can be empowered to do your own thing was very different. You know, we went into law or banking or medicine or advertising and things like that. And so, and so I like to go, I like learning. So going to school was kind of, was the next step. And I, like I said, I didn't want to be a doctor. So I just went to law school and I went Washington DC was it really wasn't any more complicated than that. However, I did always have kind of an interest in in media, uh, just a personal interest. And so the law that I practiced in the few years that I practiced it was really centered around media and telecommunications. I was I worked at a at a very small firm that that really represented buyers and sellers of radio stations and TV stations and cable networks and telecommunications concerned. Most of actually our clients ended up being sellers because this was during uh, an early, one of the early waves of, of pre-internet early waves of deregulation in the media business. And so we had a lot of uh, clients who were selling out to, uh, to the aggregators, uh, you know, the time orders and the companies like that. But in doing that, I realized that our kind of, I've now realized that a lot of our clients at that point in time were entrepreneurs. I mean, these were people that like started what were small businesses in industries that people weren't really sure could be large like radio and television and then ended up kind of hitting the jackpot in a, in a period of, of consolidation and, and selling. And so, uh, and so I kind of, you know, like I said, my, I wasn't really interested in the law per se. I was interested in learning and that led me into kind of a uh, media uh, media business or media legal business. And that ultimately in an indirect way led me to AOL. And I guess it was 95 or 96 when I joined AOL in Washington, DC. And then I kind of, you know, that got me into the internet world and I'm here 20 years later. So what was the, the first role within AOL? I mean, what, I, it's such a large company. It's changed so much over the years. What were the key sort of projects that you worked on during that time? Well, you know, I think like, AOL at that point in time, one of its core competencies was in doing deals. And so I did deals and those deals were 
were software deals, there were marketing deals, there were media distribution deals. I did deals with AOL, I did deals with MTV, I did deals with American Express. I mean, AOL, you know, viewed itself at the time as as a media company, although it was a digital media company, and and people and and a large portion of the people on the what was the internet at the time, which was AOL, were you know were on AOL. They were AOL subscribers, and so people wanted distribution companies, entities, content uh, content makers wanted distribution through AOL, and so we, we did distribution types of deals, and those deals could have been, could be for content for New York Times at one point it was with. Uh, it was for crossword puzzles. The American Express was actually checking your bill online, which was a big deal at the time. It feels a little anachronistic talking about it now, but uh, you go to AOL keyword American Express and you can look up your bill. Um, some of them were e-commerce. Uh, worked a lot on instant messaging, spinning out instant messaging further than AOL never could be aim a standalone, a standalone product. Uh, so they were that uh, really wide range, wide range of stuff. Excellent. And when when you looked at those deals and you compare them to kind of the the deals that are done today, have have you seen a huge change in the way that large companies like AOL engage with startups? Is how much has that evolved? And any any key material things that you know, intelligence? Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think you know, what's funny is that I don't, I think that I don't I don't recall having a memory of AOL thinking of itself it was large. I believe I think we thought of ourselves as having leverage, you know, and we and we and a lot of our relationships though were also with startups at the time like Amazon or this thing called uh, Music Boulevard or CD Now, uh, you know, on the e-commerce side, um, as well as kind of incumbents like MTV and New York Times. I think the difference is that, and this is a pretty material difference, was that AOL was a closed environment. It was a proprietary. You know, it's proprietary software that connected via the internet backbone, but but it was a controlled environment. And I think as and and then and then as the web took prominence over that, you know, one of the great things about the web, if you want to build a website, it was a permissionless. You just did it, and and then anyone in the world theoretically could access to it. And then as search became the primary motif for for uh, for accessing that information. The you know the the theor- you know the potential leverage or what was thought of as the leverage of a, of a, clo- a distribution leverage of a closed environment made a lot less sense. You didn't have to go through AOL to get people to use your service. And in fact, in many ways, AOL may have been more friction filled than just going to the open web. And so I think the way that different types of parties viewed themselves because of the more open nature of the web was a pretty big material change in, in how media relationships, um, you know, began to evolve because of that. Hmm. You didn't, you didn't need to get a channel on a cable network. You didn't need to get a channel on AOL. We called them channels. You just go type in, you just go to Google, you know, type in a web address or just type in the name of a service and you get there. No one, you know, there's no theoretical blocker in the way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the history of media pre internet is one of, you know, scarcity around distribution changing to abundance around distribution. And that obviously I think changes the relationship between the parties and how, how two different entities may yeah. think about acting. I mean, to some extent that has changed over the years and that kind of uh, wall no longer exists by any one company, but it's not unusual to have startups have access to one potential customer who does have quite a bit of leverage. What advice do you give generally? I know we're jumping around a little bit, but what kind of advice do you generally give to founders who have the opportunity to have a proof of concept or an early distribution partnership with some big company that does, in some case, promise a large distribution network and a lot of access to their clientele, but at the risk of of some of those things that that usually come along with that? 
tread tread lightly and carefully. <laughs> when thinking about that, it's a very uh, it's, it can be a very tenuous situation because you lose control of you know of the potential outcomes. I think about the reason that you or the companies you invest in, we we invest in, do what they do is because they have an idea and a product they want to see in the world, and they don't want to. At some level, they don't want to ask permission for that, and so you know having one having customer concentration or distribution concentration does kind of run counter to that. And, uh, and, and I've seen it, you know, I've seen it have negative effects as much as it has positive effects early on in the life. Obviously things change later on. And so, so my guidance, if I could offer any that would be relevant would be tread carefully and tread lightly because you don't want to be captive to any one partner early on in your existence, particularly before you land product market fit or something like that. Yeah, great advice. Now, if you move on from the AOL days, what what did you do next? So then I, you know, I, I you know, kind of roundabout way, I ended up back in New York and in, in the venture. Uh, in, that's I got I got my start in the venture industry and moved back up to New York and started a venture group with some people here in kind of the early days uh, of the web in New York City. And so I I got venture experience then. And is that was that when we were at the the Soundview? Uh, and yeah, exactly. Is, yeah, exactly. Dontre, which was which was it was an independent venture fund that basically got, got rolled up into um, a large, a, a somewhat of a larger company. We were the venture capital group. Uh, we, it was independent. We had raised outside outside funds, but we were, we did we did venture there, and that was kind of like the first wave of the internet boom. One of the things that founders are asking for from new funds is what they bring to the table. And you have a track record now, looking backwards, of bringing in quite a bit of value to the table. And that history now is the foundation upon which founders seek you out. But when you started this new fund back in 99, what was the promise to the founders that, that you offered? Capital. Just capital. <laughs> I don't know if it was just capital, but I think there. I think there was a period. I think capital was scarcer or more difficult to access. I mean, how, you know how we define venture funds and what they did, you know. And I think that was. If you think about the history of venture capital, there was there was a more of a scarcity around around capital and access, a scarcity around the access to the people who had that capital. If you had that capital, that was a big deal. I think you had to offer kind of advice and guidance to the founders as well, but I think it came with capital, which is why the terms of the investments were very different back then as well. There were no standard term sheets. There were no incubators, there was no seed camp, there was no Y Combinator, there were no really these pre-blogs, you know, so how would you find out about people and what they stand for and what their ideas were? It was a very, very different world, but I think, I think the primary asset you brought was capital. It wasn't a capital. You had that role for roughly around six years, you know, from 99 to 2005. Walk us through what were the key investments, what were the key learnings that you took away during that period of time? I think, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking like early 2000s, you know, yeah. and I think the key learnings and a lot of the, you know, hindsight has this incredible clarifying effect where what you did in the past made so much sense. But at the time, you didn't really have those learnings. And I think that one of the going back to what you said before, I think the idea that you know the capital was going to be scarce or access to capital was really scarce, and therefore a venture investor, you know, had more had more leverage or opportunities was the opposite of the world we ended in. And that was kind of a learning, you know, that that maybe was the wrong approach. 
You know, money is money. And as long as you get money, you can grow your business. So you have to offer something in addition to that money, whether it's a thesis, whether it's operational experience, whether you have empathy or whatever those attributes are. And I think that at that point in time, I'm not sure we thought about differentiation that way, even though it was kind of a boom. You know, I think that's the first part in the investor world. The second learning that I would say that actually flowed through to Betaworks and then to Union Square Ventures is, as an investor, what's your point of view? And if you don't have a specific point of view, what is it that you offer? If you invest in everything, you know, then you're not, then you have no even inch, inch thick, you know, deepness in expertise on anything. And, and you need to have some focus point as an investor. By the way, that can be stage, it can be methodology, it can be thesis, it can be sector, it can be geography. And I think back in those days, we didn't have uh, as much of that. And I think we probably suffered from that a little bit. And was there anywhere where you started gravitating towards, you know, during that period, you must have been drawn to sectors or stages or functionalities. What, what were the key areas that you started seeing as areas that now you see as what you provide value to founders with? Well, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I think it's a couple things, right? One is if you move away from, if you move away from the idea that your capital is of primary importance as an investor, there's something else you have to bring. And for me, it was, again, in hindsight, the realization that your pattern recognition is, is of huge value that you bring, more value than the capital itself. In other words, the ability to see things and say, oh, I've seen this before. Maybe this is how it's going to play out, or I've seen this before. This is how it's not going to play out, or I've seen this before. This this time is different. You know, I think mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, the ability to have a, a good wide set of experiences to allow you to to bring that. And then I think the other thing, which led to kind of my later experiences, was, you know, I'd always even from the back in the AOL days, I loved the web. I kind of fell in love with the web, and I fell in love with the you know, as someone who is more introverted than extroverted, the ability to make connections with people you know, that you don't know was felt really meaningful. And, and the, you know, evolutionary, that became the social web and attributes of the social web, which was something that was, you know, that I, that I had a personal interest in and I loved it. And also going back to the AOL days, and I've written about this a little bit, I think like as many new services as we layered onto AOL, people just wanted to chat with each other, you know? Yeah. And so we could add on the banking if people wanted to chat and we could experiment in streaming video if people wanted to chat. So it was really like the social element is what people were trying to, you know, people valued as much as anything else. And, and I did personally as well. And that led to, you know, to the beginnings in 2004, 5, 6, 7 of, of what we kind of call the social web. Now we've even moved past that, but that that led to the next thing because that was something that I was just particularly attracted to. Yeah, and if we and we take a pause from the, the sort of chronology of, you know, Betaworks and Union Square, maybe this is a good point to talk a little bit about, it sounds like this was the origin of some of the theses that you guys have behind network effect businesses. Yes. And maybe you can walk us through kind of what you see now as the key attributes that define a network effect business, you know, how does an investor like USV look at uh, that social component and how that scales and when you know that somebody's found the right attributes to scale a network effect business? Well, this is interesting. I think there are a couple different components of what you asked that are, uh, that are kind of cool. I'll talk about the latter one first, which is 
in many ways, it's hard to quantify a network effect. You know, you don't, you can't really tell it's happening, but except when it's happened and you know that it's happened, right? And a network effect is a business that gets more valuable the more users, right? You know, some, you know, it's more valuable to each participant as as the number of participants grow, and that's, you know, that's somewhat quantitative, but as much qualitative, and you kind of only see it when when you see it afterwards, and you're like, oh, look, that's what's happening here. And some of the attributes can be that a service continues to grow or its usage grows, even if the product is not necessarily evolving as much, uh, even if you might be able to find kind of ways to nitpick around the product, you know, it still is a valuable to participants uh, because they unique kind of network connections. And so, and, and at USV, we view, you know, the network world almost, if you could put it in, in buckets, it's two different buckets. You know, the first, you know, 2004 to 2014 or 15, let's say, you know, network effect 1.0 world was when we defined our our view, you know, of network effects as, or our view as our, our investments we like to make as, you know, large networks of engaged users that are uh, differentiated um, um, by user experience and defensible through network effects. And that leads to things like Twitter, Tumblr, Etsy, SoundCloud, things like that. And then um, as things got fragmented and as, uh, as mobile came into play and a bunch of other attributes, we kind of took a little bit of a different turn on network effects and said they're not only these broad-based networks, but they actually can be, um, you know, enablers, uh, enablers of infrastructure. Uh, they can be horizontal network effects where horizontal networks where the network effects look a little different or less obvious, or they can be in verticals like education, you know, or verticals like science, or verticals, specific verticals like medicine. Uh, specific verticals like the law, for example, we, we have an investment in a company called Castex. And so they end up, network effects end up looking a little different 10 years later than it started. But again, they're still at their core services that get more valuable to each participant as they engage with the service. Excellent. And if you look at the, the verticals that are in place right now and that are continuing to grow, if you wanted to extrapolate what the the untapped ones would be maybe that's one one half of the question the other half of the question is if mobile unlocked quite a bit of new network effect verticals and horizontals what would be the next technology that would unlock yet the next level of network effect i mean is this where i'm i'm improvising here but is this where ai comes into play or is is there something that you guys are seeing as a, a bigger enabler than than mobile yeah. So let me ask, let me, let me go back to the first question, which I think is interesting too. I mean, one of the areas, I don't know if it's unlocked, but feels like we're seeing a confluence of events that are leading potentially transformational companies is in medicine and, uh, and networks around medicine. What do those look like? How do they look differently? How should they look differently? How does mobile affect the provision of medicine to you as a user or the practice of medicine to someone who's a healthcare professional. So medicine is like one of the big areas for us. It's not the only one, but we think it's very early on in, in the creation of new medical networks and what those may look like. And so we're spending a lot of time. We've spent a lot of time in the past couple of years on that and we will continue to. In terms of kind of like what's next, our thinking is, is isn't, it isn't that it's not AI and the capability of machines to take on more tasks. But we think Bitcoin and the blockchain are particularly, have a particular potential for transformation 
in term in terms of new types of network effects and new businesses or protocols or applications. And I would say that's the area we're probably spending the most time thinking about, if not investing in as well. That's what we've identified so far. Interesting. Well, any founders that are listening, now you know. Uh, we published a lot on it. so Exactly. So if we move from your days over at Soundview and go on to Betaworks, Betaworks is one of these brands that I think has spearheaded quite a bit of ideas in terms of how to help companies scale, grow, and even be built. Maybe you can walk us through through the early days of Betaworks, your role, and and some of the interesting founders that you've worked on uh, with. And that would be great to just hear that that whole history as it evolved. Well, I think, you know, when I I think about the history, and by the way, it's it's not by coincidence that Betaworks and Seedcamp were founded probably around the exact same time as was Y Combinator. Um, You know, these are like disparate events that obviously the disparate groups of of geographically diverse people came to kind of similar conclusions. The conclusion for us in around Betaworks was really twofold, right? It was the primacy of, of of, of the change that the social web represented in terms of a wave of building new types of applications and services. And so that was like, that was the subject matter that was interesting. And then at the same time was this observation we had that the ability to build and launch these services was, was an entrepreneur's ability was dramatically greater, you know, it was easier for them and less expensive for them and were getting even less expensive um, than ever before. And part of that was things like AWS and tools and APIs and all just a confluence of events that says, if you had an idea, you could actually launch a product and service and see if it worked really quickly and inexpensively. And we took those two things and we said, that's great. We should start a company around that. And in doing so, what kind of company did we want to start? And we said, well, we want to build products because we each have some operational experience and we and we like to build products and we like to be involved in building products and it's so much easier to do so we should do that and then at the same time we said well but you know other people have good ideas too and we should invest in them as well and so we had this idea that probably was most closely analogous to a you know a film studio or a movie studio you know which financed its own productions but also may finance outside productions as well so you build and you invest but in the same roof and then the entity you know the participants in the entity and this ecosystem get the compounding effects of you know of an organization that has disparate activities and that you get the benefit of those activities and so that was the genesis this kind of wacky idea that you could build things and um, you could build things internally and you can invest in things you know, from the same, from one company. And so you're combining an operating company and a venture capital firm. So with with that, what were the key companies that you both invested in and created that you look back now and you think, wow, that was just an amazing both experience, but I can't believe how well that, that turned out. Yeah. And I think, you know, and so I would say the things that we, that we built uh, were, uh, you know, the first few that worked were, you know, Bitly and Chartbeat were a couple of them. Um, and the first few that we invested in, the first company we invested in was Tumblr. The second was Songkick. The third was, you know, or in the top five was Kickstarter as well. Uh, and then there was the company that became Draw Something. I mean, there was a, it was a pretty interesting portfolio. So those were some, <clears throat> those were some of the names right at that time. And I, but I think that it was, you know, I think we had a right idea. We had a good structure. 
And in the beginning, we, we, there were people we brought into the orbit that were incredibly, unbelievably talented that helped us with the activities. And then sometimes they went out and started their own thing. So Andrew Cortina went and started Venmo, was one of the first three or four people in the, you know, in the Betaworks house, uh, for example. And so we were able to attract a good group of people that were willing to take a risk on this wacky idea that you can build and invest in the same time. If you look back at those companies that you built versus those you invested in, it implies, especially since you had some really successful ones like Bitly and Chartbeat that you helped build, if you look at the methods or the attributes that helped them become successful and you narrowed it down to the top three, what were the top three things that you helped instill within these companies or facilitated that allowed them to repeatedly become successful companies, you know, the multiple ones you worked on? So I think that, you know, I think, I think the main thing was this idea that you, you know, you take the idea that you have in your head, you know, for a problem that you need to be solved and you need to get some version of that idea to market as quickly as possible. There's a lot of literature on this now, but if you go back 10 years, there was a lot less. It was just a notion that you have an idea, you get it out of your idea, you get it into market, and then you iterate once it's in market was was the main one, you know, rapid iteration. And by the way, rapid iteration also would mean rapidly shutting things down if the assumptions you made going into them proved to be incorrect. And so a lot of it was speed and the ability to iterate based on feedback from the market. Chartbeat, which is a, a web and mobile traffic analytics tool, started as a, a chat service. It was the same underlying technology and insight into the service, but what we saw was happening looked more to us like an analytic service, so we flipped the model around and it became the analytic service. And so if we weren't, I think if we weren't so open to watching how these things evolve and what changes, you know, what feedback you're getting from the market, I think, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to iterate so rapidly on them. And that was the idea. So again, take it from your head, get it to market, get feedback, iterate it, shut it down. Shut it down could mean put it in a drawer and pull it out a couple years later. Um, but speed and finding kind of product market fit. So if that was the first one, what were the, the next two? Well, that was about three in once. If you really, want, <laughs> if you really want, if you really, if you really want to hold me to it. You well, know? I, guess, I guess maybe, <laughs> maybe what would be great to hear is how you staff up. How do you find people yeah. and how do you manage people for companies that are being engineered rather than companies that happen organically where you then invest as an external party? Yeah, this is this is a really good one. I really think I think it it's it's a lot about who are the people that are open to that flexible environment, or that much of an unstructured environment, or that much of an environment where I wouldn't say there was improvisation going on, but there was a lot of flexibility and a lot of like you know you had you know Billy Chasen had this idea for this you know, this is the precursor of Chartbeat it's called Firefly which is um, this server-side piece of software, when you went to any website, this is pre-mobile days, right? You could just start typing and, and, and a chat bubble would appear on your cursor and you could talk to anyone on the website. There was no registration. It was just site-specific instantaneous chat, which was kind of interesting from a technology perspective and, and, and had been adopted. And when we launched the code, it was adopted by maybe it was thousands of sites. 
And then when we went back, and then he built this tool where you could replay the chats because we wanted to see what people were talking about. And when you gave them site-specific anonymous chat, and for the most part, it was kind of drivel. You know, it wasn't really that into it. wasn't really talking about the content. You know, they were talking about other crap, and people were, you know, doing weird, odd things. But, um, but when we replayed the chats, because the chat bubble was where someone's cursor was, you could actually see the traffic patterns. You know, when you look at your Google Analytics in the day, you, you think of traffic about a certain day as a static thing, like we had... 10 visitors yesterday or 10,000 visitors. But instead what happens is traffic swarmed a lot. You'd have no one and then you'd get thousands of people and then they'd be gone and then you'd get hundreds of people and then they'd be gone. And we had this notion that uh, that traffic over the course of the day was very organic. And a lot of this was driven from the social from the social applications which were pushing traffic based on events that were happening on those social networks. And so we had the notion that, wow, this was an analytics tool that we built, not really a chat tool. And so if you weren't open to that mode of exploration, you would have kind of doubled down on the chat business and not seen the other opportunity. And so I think the ability to attract people who are open to that level of that flexibility and that level of re reactive, be able to react to the market and change things quickly, I think was another was another key thing that worked for a while. If if we look at companies like Tumblr and Twitter. Uh, they have many things that that um, are obviously different, but one thing that they had in common in early days was investors had to be patient with what the ultimate monetization strategy would be whilst there was building capacity for network effect. And I think founders today are in a different environment and, and investors, I think, today are perhaps less tolerant of, of how capital is used for that kind of scaling. But maybe walk us through what the early thesis and how m growth was managed and expectations for monetization were in the days of the Tumblr investment, but also how you think about businesses like Tumblr, if they were to come to you today in terms of when you would consider investing and, and how maybe New York Venture is looking at monetization for businesses like those today. I mean, I think it's some, I, I really do think at some level, nothing, things haven't changed. In other words, if you're building a broad-based service um, that has some attributes, in, because it's broad, it has attributes, it looks like a media company. And by saying media company, meaning it's just a service that, that will have lot, millions and millions of people, then I think the model really hasn't changed, which is if you can grow that audience, you know, then the expectation is you'll figure out a native way to monetize it. You may not. But that monetization part comes after the aggregation of the users. You know, we have we have this. We still invest in those, and we still will invest in those. I think it's harder to build those and grow those because the network effects, as it were, of the existing players—Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, whatever—is really strong. And so, your ability to you know create a new service that has you know, gazillion users may be, it may be a lot harder. But if you do, then I think history tells us that it's more likely than not, uh, or at least it's not, very, it's not unlikely that you'll figure out a way to monetize those. Other businesses, it's different, right? I think, I think the model hasn't changed dramatically, but it still goes something like find product market fit, you know, evolve from product market fit to where you have 
you know, some level of you're delivering an enormous value to someone or a material amount of value and then figure out, right, what's the right value exchange around that. If it's a marketplace, it's a take rate. If it's a SaaS business, it's a monthly fee. Um, but I think there are different buckets and some of those buckets haven't changed. Some have. I think that we're probably in a part of the cycle now where the investor class in general wants to wants to have a better sense for what that ultimate business model or monetization scheme is going to be, if not requiring it for an investment um, as markets get crowded. A lot of SaaS software companies in almost every sector can be. And so what's your differentiation and how are you going to get people to pay, for example? Um, so I think maybe that has changed. But I do think on the broad media side, you know, history tells us if you can aggregate a large engaged user base, you will figure out a native way to monetize. You have a good chance of figuring out a native way to monetize may not be a good chance. If we move now to your transition to USV, maybe you can walk us through where USV is today in terms of investment thesis, areas of, of um, investment sectors that you're interested in, and how a founder could come to work with you. And then what we can, we can explore a little bit is some of the areas that you're personally interested in within USV. So, I mean, again, USV as, you know, like first round capital is focused being on the first money. Seed camp is similar to that. We're thesis driven. That thesis is around network effects. That hasn't changed. Um, we've published a lot over the years of, about how we, uh, how we, what we think there are different opportunities for networks. Like I said, for a long period of time, it was broad based, large, you know, large networks of engaged users. Now we've moved into kind of more vertical specific uh, networks, networks with less obvious uh, uh, services with less obvious network effects, enabling technologies, so technologies that need to serve the horizontal platforms, fundamental enabling technologies, and then decentralized data, which is basically the blockchain. But it's still networks. It's just where we're focused on those networks or where we think there are opportunities for us as an investor may have changed. And so the way we do it is we just publish a crap load of stuff so that you know, we share our thoughts, we share our conversation, and that's actually how we find investments or how people find us. So it's a constant dialogue. I got two of my partners that are blogging almost every day. Every now and then I'll be inspired to do it. We've got a lot of ton of stuff up on um, up on our website. Encourage everyone here to publish as much as we can. And again, because it's the conversation, that's where we get feedback. We're not attempting to show how smart we are because I'm not sure we are, but we're attempting to kind of get feedback from the market. And that's how we find things that way. And you guys pioneered the, that method of communicating with founders and, and you know, the, the number of founders here in Europe that will reference uh, posts that you guys have written is... I think it's worked well for us because, because we, I think we're, I think we're very good at understanding what we think might be the right questions at a right point in time and and entrepreneurs are the ones that figure out the right answers and so it's and so by keep publishing the questions is a way to find you know get the smart people that think they know what the answers are it's worked for us i don't know if it works for everyone or it would always work for everyone but it definitely works for us it's a good it's our it's a style that works well with the type of people we have here so so we're comfortable and within the scope of, of those elements, you know, decentralized, the network effect companies, enablers, what are the things that interest you the most? You know, are there sectors, I mean, you talked about healthcare earlier, but are there other sectors that, that you find interesting and um, or specific verticals that you find interesting that are, that are dear to well, you? Well, I would say, that, yeah, I would say, I mean, there are, I would say education 
Um, I would say that the verticals that we have, with the firm has focused on the most have been education and learning, um, financial technologies, healthcare, medicine, science, and, and maybe a couple others. I would say for me, uh, you know, it was really about three, three and a half years ago, we decide, we, we, ha- we realized that maybe one of the questions was, you know, with mobile and all these other trends that we're talking about, you know, there's opportunity for new networks in health and medicine to be created. And we've spent a lot of time on that. I've personally have spent a lot of time on that. I personally am continuing to spend a lot of time on that because I think that that potential is just, we're just in the beginning. When I say networks, you know, you know, what, what are the new networks? What are the new ways to provide care that are more user centric? What are the ways to provide care that give users more choices over their health? What are the ways to provide healthcare that allow doctors to connect with each other? Those things are, you know, that's probably the most important, most interesting thing to me right now. I'd say the blockchain stuff is as well, again, because um, when you have a lot of services that are centralized around their data asset, one way that they could be transformed is through decentralized data assets, which is what blockchain and blockchain technologies are, are that's what they do by definition. So I think we're all we we're all really intrigued by that, and I am as well, and I'm looking a lot about that. I also the people if involved. I to, in, if I had to, um, if I had to sort push you and put you on the spot, as making a yeah. prediction as to where blockchain yeah. will be five years from now in terms of how it's being used, if you had to take a guess, what would you say right now? Well, I would say like I, we. I think that in some ways this is going to reflect the early, you know, the early web, you know, and so. Uh, and so you've got a lot of exploration right now. You have a lot of true believers, and then that may lead to applications that have real specific user value. I think it will come on the infrastructure side first. File storage is one. I think it will then uh, it could then go to uh, the media side. We have an investment in a company called Media Chain. It could go to the marketplace, you know, commerce side. So I don't. It's not. There's not one specific area that I think, but I think it. I think it could very well track the web. Uh, and that's how we're looking at it. But we don't have. But, I, I, I hard find. I'd be hard to hard pressed to real conviction about one specific area because it's too early. Yeah, I mean, like I, I saw a investment. Um, I think Qualcomm did about maybe a year ago in chipsets that can deal with the blockchain at the chip level, so that any kind of transaction that is going to be encrypted is using a transaction, a mini blockchain transaction to enable that encryption to happen. You know, yeah. if, if that were successful, we're talking about uh, an internet where encryption is blockchain enabled. Yep. And that's the way that you can make yep. sure that there is no invalidation of certificates and stuff like that. Do you see yep. any fundamental thing like that being in place five years from now? Do you see, for example, the entire real estate market in New York being on blockchain anytime soon? Or are we talking about like a 10 year thing and maybe we're gonna hit this one a little too early? I think I think it's I think it's closer to ten than sooner than ten. <laughs> that way, so I don't. Um, um, but you know the way these things work because you've experienced in this is it, it there comes out of you know it comes out of left field and surprises you before you realize it. But I do think it's going to be longer rather than shorter because I think the infrastructural elements are just there are just mm-hmm. beginning the methodologies to incent all the participants. The methodologies to fund these things at the early stages are just so new that I think these I think it will take time. I think some infrastructure elements like file storage, mm-hmm. you know, which is a use case that is known, and if it could be done better, faster, and cheaper, then you could gain market share that way, or a, pl- or a protocol could gain market share that way. And so, mm-hmm. 
those are probably the initial ones, but I don't really have. You know, we've made investments in 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 commerce marketplace, in media, um, and in storage and file file storage. So we can that gives you a sense for a couple of the areas we think, but um, but unclear on the timing. Mm. Makes sense. And I interrupted you while you were walking me through sort of your your health, the, the healthcare side of things and, and medicine and your interest there. And you, know, you wrote a blog post about that recently as well. Yep, which was kind of the core. I think we published a bunch on uh, on on USV and then um, and the idea of reordering the provision of medical care, uh, partially to allow it to be, you know, where a user has control or a user is empowered is one of the key areas that I'm thinking about. That makes sense. And I think that's something that, you know, we haven't really even seen before. So it will be a, a huge shift in the way that we see things. Now, in yeah. terms of if, if I visit another area that's kind of hot uh, and maybe is actually, uh, maybe I'm, you can correct me if, if this is not what you experienced, but I think it's declining a little bit in hotness is, is sort of the bots and the messenger interface uh, investment landscape. And I'm curious to see whether or not, and I know you wrote about it recently, is this something that has sort of seen its its uh, maximum evolution because it is naturally limited in how people can interact with it before, for example, AI and, and voice to text works well enough to then have it become conversational, truly conversational, as opposed to typed conversational. Where do you think, yeah, that, I think where it is are, today and think- where it will be? I think there, I don't know, you know, I only, I think a couple things here. I think one is that my, you know, my experiences in the web um, is, um, is that, you know, things grow vertically and then horizontally. And so if you think about bots, they need to solve a very specific problem for someone. I've written about this too. I think the second challenge is right now is unless you're operating through, you know, your own messaging platform, you are subject, you know, you're operating on someone else's platform subject to their rules. And that's, you know, history tells us that's difficult. That can be difficult to get traction, not always. But the early days of that are always, you know, where does value accrue and how much value will the platform extract from you and can you build a business off of that? All those norms are still being understood because it's so early and until those are well known you know, you're reliant on, you know, you're reliant on a gatekeeper. So, hmm. yeah. So we'll, we'll, there'll be some time still to, I guess, figure that one out. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, conversational voice conversation, there's a lot going on there. I just don't, you know, there, the contours of it are very, are really, you know, unknown to me Yeah. right now. At least. Yeah. No, I could definitely see where that would evolve. So, I mean, I've been playing with Alexa and, and that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So we'll yeah, exactly. And that, by the way, and that looks kind of like the most open platform and therefore you have a lot of interest in it. A lot of developers just will it remain open. Can you build a platform that conducts commerce? Will Amazon take a piece of that commerce? I mean, these are all, these are unknown. And if you were going to build into that around that, you'd have to be thinking about those questions, but you can't answer those questions. Facebook yeah. messenger, same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I could definitely see a future where uh, a, a developer of a website, like the use of intercom IO, but in this case, it's written to Alexa and everybody's got an Alexa at home. And you say, yeah. Alexa, uh, please let my uh, Crutchfield catalog uh, order know that I'm unhappy with the delivery time. And then right. initiates a chat session with yeah. the customer service of Crutchfield. And then you end up uh, 
continuing the conversation via Alexa. I could see that happening. Yeah, potentially. Exactly. I think something like a point, I think point solutions like that are where, where some of the initial promise will get, will be, will be realized. Cool. So we've been talking about investments and there's a different kind of investment, which is the investment in yourself. What is the best investment in yourself that you've made over the course of your career? So this is a good question. I think that I was thinking about there are probably a couple. I, I don't, I try and meet with as many people as I possibly can, because I think that's an investment in increasing my intelligence. And I did that in the early days of beta work. I try and do it as much as I possibly can. Um, it's just talk to as many people or listen to as many people as possible to increase, you know, the amount of intelligence in your brain. Likewise, I try and read a lot of fiction as well, because I think it does the same thing. Excellent. Science fiction, I presume. <laughs> you know, I don't like science fiction. Actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's too, pre- not that I, I mean, I like it somewhat, but I don't, the fiction I read, I don't want to be too, too prescriptive. I see. You know, I want more general ideas and how people interact, you know, how characters may interact or think about the world or how people may describe those situations using language, but not science fiction. Okay. Well, what's something that you used to strongly believe that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about? I think that I used to think that as a venture investor, you have, there was a lot more skill involved in picking companies that you invest in than, than, uh, than there actually is. I think there's probably much more luck involved than I used to believe at the beginning. In fact, there may be more luck than skill. Well, I think for any LPs that are listening, um, you're just extremely lucky. And so please yes. continue backing Andy. <laughs> well, by the way, I think it takes a lot of skill to be lucky also. There you go. <laughs> so, but I do think that I don't know, you know, the, the process, you know, what goes into, uh, you know, what, what are the things you're deciding on when making, deciding to make an investment in a specific company? Um, and I have found in, you know, and I used to think that was a lot. Like I could tell, you could tell Tumblr's going to be big. That's why we invest in Tumblr. Instead, what happened was it was a healthy dose of luck that went into it, you know, and, and maybe as much luck as there was skill. So you got to be humble about that. Yeah, fair enough. So what's one bad habit you're trying to get rid of? Carlos, I'm a lot older than you. I no longer have any bad habits left, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but here's but I'll tell and so, but here's one. Did you guys, you guys know about Hamilton, right? You know, Hamilton's going to come to London at some point. But you know about the show on Broadway, yeah. Hamilton, which kind of blew up over here. It's really wonderful, wonderful piece of art. But um, there's this piece of advice that Aaron Burr gives Alexander Hamilton that Hamilton doesn't necessarily take, but I always thought was pretty profound. And there's a bunch of different points to the, in the show where he says to him, you know, talk less, smile more. Um, and I always thought that, you know, maybe when, maybe talking too much is a bad habit and you should just, you know, you should talk less and, and, and just experience more. Well, that is congruent with what uh, rumor has you as being the entrepreneur's confidant. So Andy, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an awesome. amazing experience for me to not only hear your thoughts on the current investment landscape, but just, you know, how you became you. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show sometime in the future. Love we can to talk about that. the future of blockchain and see how that turns Thank out. Thank you. And we could talk about at some point 
you know, the first seed camp I went to was the second one ever. Wow. So the good old days of ago. that, yeah. Andrew Parker, who's at Sport Capital, and I were there. That's right. Uh, together, wow. yeah. Yeah, this is a decade ago. So. A decade ago. Anyway. Yep, cool. exactly. All right. Well, thanks, Andy. Okay. Until sure next thing. time. Take care. Bye.